Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. While you're turning there, I'll, I'll give you a heads up that this is going to be the last Sunday in Genesis for now. We're going to come, come back to it, but for now, the series we were in was just Genesis 1 to 11. And so, starting next week, in case you're wondering, where are we going? We are going to be spending a couple months over the summer in the Psalms. So we, were, we did that for a few summers uh, a couple years ago. And then we kind of departed from that pattern last year. But we want to get back into it. Just because the Psalms are so good for our souls. And just helping us have language. They cover the whole spectrum of the Christian life. The joys, the sorrows, the challenges, uh, the hopes. And so we want to just immerse our hearts in the songs of Jesus is what we call the psalm series. So we're going to do that starting next week. But this week, I am excited as we wrap up our time for now in the book of Genesis. So if you're in Genesis, we're looking at chapter 11 starting in verse 10. And we're going to go through chapter 12 verse 3. So hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Reu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we come to the end of the beginning. The first 11 chapters of the Bible lay the groundwork for the whole rest of the Bible. And it puts several critical pieces in place for us to understand the storyline of the Bible. That's why we call this series on the front of your bulletin Gospel Foundations. Because Genesis 1 to 11 gives us the foundational truths that the gospel is built upon. The gospel wouldn't make sense if we didn't know what we learn here in Genesis 1 to 11. So as kind of a quick recap, think back with me what we know from these first 11 chapters. First, we know that before anything else existed, there was a God. And this God created everything that exists. He made the world and all that fills it. And the world that he made was a good world, full of order, wonder, and beauty. And as his magnum opus of creation, this God created mankind in his image. The eternal creator God made us, male and female, to be like him and know him and enjoy him. There are no other creatures that get to enjoy such a glorious privilege. We know that when God made us in his image, he blessed us and he gave us dominion and a commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with worshipers. He tasked us with ruling over the world he created underneath his good authority. And because he made us and gave us all that we have and all that we are, we owe this God everything. We owe him our love, our loyalty, our trust, and our worship. But we also saw that into this paradise, an evil enemy slithered in and tempted us to question the goodness of this God. In our hearts, we wanted to be like God and to not have to rely upon God anymore, but instead do things our own way. And so we disobeyed and rebelled against God, and this rebellion the Bible terms sin. And this sin caused us not only to turn against God, but to turn on one another, with brother rising up against brother. Sin eventually spread so deep and so wide that eventually the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We also saw the horrific consequences of this sin. We saw that the wages of sin is death. It was promised in the garden and then pounded out like a drumbeat in chapter 5 with each life punctuated with, and he died, and he died, and he died. But that wasn't the only consequence of sin. With sin came exile from God's place and presence. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden Cain was driven from the ground, and the tower builders were scattered all over the earth, divided from one another. Sin also brought a curse that infected the whole world, bringing pain and difficulty to life and marriage and work in this fallen world. And eventually, sin brought a flood of God's wrath crashing down on the world he had made. 
And in his just anger against sin, God wiped out sinners from the face of the earth, except those who took refuge in his grace. So think about what we know of the gospel so far from Genesis 1 to 11. We know there is a creator God who is worthy of our trust and obedience. We know that we have all sinned against this good God and therefore rightly deserve his wrath, curse, exile, and death. This is what we know so far. We've got these building blocks in place. And so far, the story is not a good one. Because over and over again, the story of Genesis 1 to 11, this foundational part of the Bible, is one of human rebellion and sin. From the garden, to Cain and Abel, to the flood, to Ham's sin against Noah, to the Tower of Babel. Over and over again, these chapters make clear what the biggest problem in the world is. It's us. It's you and me, and it's our sin and the consequences of our sin. So that's the conflict in the story of the world. So in case you haven't figured out, that's what God's doing in these opening chapters. He's telling us a story. And just like every story, in these chapters, we have the characters, we meet the setting, the plot, and that's the conflict. The conflict is the world is a mess ravaged by sin and its consequences what will God do with it that's the question we're left at the end of these chapters is where's this story gonna go like this has not been a beautiful story to this point how will this conflict get resolved what will God do about the problem of sinful rebels and the consequences of their sin in other words we know the plight and the problem we all face now the stage is set All the pieces are in place for some good news. Now, we've been getting hints of this good news. Don't get me wrong. We know from the first 11 chapters there's going to be an offspring who will crush the evil serpent. We know that there's going to be one who will come who will undo the curse and give us rest. We know there's one who will save us from God's wrath and cover our sin. But the last we saw, if you were here last week, the way we left things, we saw mankind's prideful rebellion against God gets stopped in its tracks and the nation scattered all over the earth. That's where we left things. So what would happen now? What will happen now? Well, to answer that question, we are going to finish this first section and what I read actually bleeds into the next one. I debated whether we should end where the section ends or whether we should cross the line and go into it. And I wanted to kind of dip our toes into the next section of Genesis because I didn't want to end this part with the bad news of our sin. I wanted to end it with the announcement of God's good news to do something about it. So as we come to the end of the beginning, I also want you to see the beginning of the rest of the story. So today we're going to see the announcement of God's good news or his gospel. And here's how, if you're taking notes, here's how I would sum up the main point of today's passage. I'm just going to tell you up front, and then you can watch as we unpack it. Despite the sinfulness of man, God graciously chooses an unlikely people to bless and be a means of blessing to all the families of the earth. Despite the sinfulness of man, God graciously chooses an unlikely people to bless and be a means of blessing to all the families of the earth. 
We're going to see this laid out in three pictures. So here's where we're going to, here's where we're going to go. First, in verses 10 to 26, we're going to see God's unfolding plan. Then in 27 to 32, we'll see his unlikely people. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we'll see his unmatched promises. His unfolding plan, his unlikely people, and his unmatched promises. So let's look first at his unfolding plan in the genealogy in eleven ten to 26. Do not worry, I will not attempt to reread that. It was hard enough the first time. But this genealogy is meant to be a bridge in two ways. If you ever wonder, what is this genealogy doing here? Well, it's actually doing two things. It's forming two really important links. That's what a bridge does, right? You've got something on this shore, something on this shore, and you've got to figure out how to get from one to the other. That's what this genealogy is doing. So the first bridge is between Abram and Adam. Abram and Adam is forming a bridge. Now, if you look at it, this genealogy should feel somewhat familiar because it's similar in style to the one we saw back in chapter 5. It's a straight line from one generation to the next. There's no branches, no talking about multiple sons. It's just father to son to father to son to father to son, straight down through the generations. And it's meant to connect Abram back to Shem. Then if you put that one with chapter 5, it goes from Shem all the way back to Adam. So with these two genealogies, what we've got is we've got this direct line. We can go from Abram all the way back to Adam. Why does that matter? Why is Moses, who's composing this book, why is he taking such length to say, I need you guys to know these two are connected? It matters because it shows us that the original purpose and commission that God gave Adam has been passed down and now extends to Abram. Adam was blessed by God. He enjoyed this blessing and he was commissioned by God to rule and have dominion over the earth. He was told that his offspring would restore peace and righteousness after a bruising conflict with evil. And now, that promise of blessing and that mission has been handed down to Abram. In spite of the persistent and pervasive sin of man, God's plan has been steadily unfolding from generation to generation. His promises and purposes have been handed down through thousands of years, despite the fall, despite the flood, and despite the tower, and not to mention innumerable daily rebellions. Nothing has stopped or slowed God's plan. As time rolls on, so does our God's good purposes to rescue his people and restore his world. Okay, so that's one bridge. He wants us to see Abram to Adam. Now the other bridge this genealogy builds is between the Tower of Babel and the call of Abram. Tower of Babel, call of Abram. You notice it takes up most of the space between those two events. Well, what happens at those two events? At the Tower of Babel, the people's pride leads them to rise up against God and attempt to make a name for themselves. And it was this trying to make a name for themselves that led to their punishment and scattering. Well then, fast forward to chapter 12, and we're going to see in a little bit that one of God's promises to Abram is to give him a great name. And in between man's failed attempt to make their own name and God's gracious promise to give Abram a great name, 
we find the family line of Shem. What does that have to do with anything? Well, guess what the Hebrew word for name is? Shem. At Babel, the people were trying to make a Shem for themselves. But God already had a Shem for the human family. And through the line of God's Shem, he'll give the great name to Abram and his offspring. So what we're meant to see in this genealogy, there's, there's not as much stuff that we can pull out of it. I'll just be honest. There's no way we could do a whole sermon on this genealogy. But what we are meant to see is that though it might not seem like anything important or big was happening, you're looking at a lot of these names saying, I don't recognize many of them. I think that's part of the point. Is that even though this seems like nothing's going on, God's good plan was always unfolding. Through the hard days and the long years, through the ordinary and seemingly insignificant lives of people we know nothing about, God's plan to bring blessing to his people was steadily marching on. And it's a reminder to us that that's still happening today. God's plan to bring blessing to his people is unfolding. This morning, this week, on those days and weeks when it feels like nothing happened, when people ask you at church, how was your week? And you draw a blank because you can't think of a single noteworthy thing that occurred and you feel like, well, that must have been a waste. Those weeks, his plans are unfolding. And so we take heart because we're one day closer to heaven. So that's what we see in this first section is that God's plan is unfolding. Now let's look at the second section in verses 27 to 32. The first thing I want you to catch there is that it begins with those words, now these are the generations of Terah. Hopefully by now it's drilled into you that that's a marker, that's a tip for you the reader saying, ah, these are the generations of, that means we're starting a new section. And what we'll see is that this new section will last all the way until chapter 25. This kind of covers the life of Abram, even though it's called the generations of Terah. And as this new section kicks off, as you would expect, we're introduced to characters. We're introduced to the people who will take center stage in this section of the book. And what I want us to see as we meet these characters is that God chooses very unlikely people to receive his blessings and be a part of his plan. Before we get into those two people, though, notice that there's a couple of big shifts here. First, the story in Genesis slows way down. The first 11 chapters cover thousands of years, at least a couple thousand years. We don't know exactly. While chapters 12 through 50 of the book focus on just four generations, probably a few hundred years. So we've covered all this time in just 11 chapters now we're going to slow it down and see a little bit more. But it's not just time. The first 11 chapters dealt with the goings-on of all humanity. It was universal in scope. But now in chapters 12 to 50, we're going to focus in on one particular family. So the, the zoom lens has come out. We're slowing down and zooming in. And the family that we're focusing on is in many ways an unlikely choice. First, notice where they're from. Twice in verses 27 to 32, we're told they're from Ur of the Chaldeans. So on a map, one thing to note is this is further east than Babel. Remember we talked last week that there's this eastward progression in sin 
that people seem to be going further and further from God's good purposes. And so now we find Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans, further east than Babel. What's interesting is that Ur of the Chaldeans, or at least the Chaldeans, was also linked with Babel. And so places in the Bible, like Isaiah 13, it calls Babylon the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, saying it was kind of like the crowning glory of the Chaldeans was Babylon. So there's this idea that Babylon and the land of the Chaldeans, they're connected, they're linked. And you're going to see this all throughout your Bibles so that what's happening here will happen again and again and again. What's happening here is that God is calling his people out of the east, out of their exile in the land of the Chaldeans. There will be a whole section in Isaiah later when they are in exile in Babylon in the east in which God calls them out and says, flee from the land of the Chaldeans. But it's not just the place where they were. This was a land filled with the worship of pagan gods. This is not a holy, God-honoring society. In fact, in Joshua 24, we see that it wasn't just the people of the land, the people that lived there who served false gods. It was Terah and his family who served other gods. What this means is that Abram and his family, these are not the good Christian people hanging out here. They are the pagan people living in a pagan land. They are not Yahweh worshipers. They're worshiping the same things their neighbors are worshiping. So there's nothing about this guy Abraham to catch God's eye or to kind of make him say, you know what, that guy's got promise. And yet God chooses Abram, which raises the question, why? Like we just assume, yeah, of course God chooses Abram, but like at this point, it's not an obvious answer. Why would God choose this idolatrous, rebellious, pagan man to be the father of his people in the beginning of his nation? Surely there were other men alive at this time who were probably more righteous. We know for one, Melchizedek, who Abram will meet later, he's alive then. He's a, he's a righteous guy. Job is possibly alive at the same time. We know that he's a righteous guy. So why does God choose Abram who has done absolutely nothing to deserve it. And the only answer we can come to is because of God's sovereign grace and purposes. God delights in choosing unlikely and undeserving sinners to bless and welcome into his people. So right from the very start here with Abram, this is not a New Testament idea, but right from the very start we see that God's family is not built of good people finding God, but it's built by God and his grace going to find and save and call rebels from their idolatry. But that's not all that's unlikely about this picture. When we meet Abram's wife, Sarai, we're told one important detail about her. There's a lot we don't know about Sarai, but we know one thing. She's barren and has no child. Now, if the promises God has already made and the ones he's about to make are going to get passed down, and if these promises are going to come to fruition, there has to be a child. That is integral to the plan. But Sarah has no child. Not only does she not have one, she can't have one. God promises he's going to make Abram and Sarah into a great nation, which means lots and lots of descendants. 
He's going to make them fruitful and multiply them until they're more numerous than the stars. And he's going to build this massive family. And to do it, he chooses a woman who can't bear children? This makes no sense. I mean, he picks a person who can't do what is necessary to receive his blessing. God doesn't just choose someone who's unlikely here. He chooses someone who is completely unable. And nothing they can do will change that. And guess what? He'll do it again. And again. Because not just Sarai is barren. So is Rebecca, the wife of her son. And so is Rachel, the wife of her grandson. The first three generations of a family that has promised countless offspring, so numerous they can't be numbered, they come through women who can't have children. Why is God doing that? That's not the way you or I would draw it up. God is showing that he will be the one who does what his people can't do in their own strength. He'll do what seems impossible. He'll show his power in their weakness and show that he alone gives life. Friends, God delights to show his grace by choosing to bless the unlikely and unable. That's why he chose us. Did you know that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So do you ever feel foolish? Do you ever feel like you just don't know the answers? Don't know what you're supposed to do? Don't know where to go from here? Ever feel weak? Like you just can't do what you need to do? Ever feel lowly, unimportant, insignificant, looked down upon? Ever feel like you have literally nothing to offer? Friends, the good news is that's who our God of grace chooses to bless. He calls the weak and says, I'll be your strength. He calls the foolish and confused and says, I'll be your wisdom. He calls those who feel like they're nothing and says, I'll be your everything. And that's what he does here with Abram. So as we get to the call of Abram in chapter 12, the stage has been set. The good plan of God's salvation has been unfolding through the years despite the sin of man. And God displays the glory of his grace by choosing to bless the unlikely and unable. Now let's, let's zoom in and look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Look there with me. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is, this is just amazing what happens here. Into the chaos of the sinful world, divided and scattered in their sin, God now speaks. We've been wondering, what's he going to do? Remember the last time 
the worldwide sin got so bad, he wiped everybody out. But he promised, I won't do that again. But now we've just had Babel with this worldwide sin and he's dispersed him and we're wondering, what's he going to do now? And the answer is, he speaks. And in these three verses, we have some of the most important words in the Bible. And I don't say that lightly. And we have some of the most important words in human history. Because the whole rest of the Old Testament flows out of these verses. God announces what he's going to do to restore blessing to the world and get his people back home again. His unfolding plan of salvation, he says, is going to run through this one man, Abram, and his offspring. And to this unlikely man, God now makes unmatched promises. These verses contain, we'll say, five different promises, depending on how you group them. And even though there's five different promises, they all start with one call, one command, go. Now there's two sides of that call, to go. First, God calls Abram to go from where he's at now and to leave the life he's currently living. Notice how he works inward in these concentric circles. He says, go from your country or your land. So go from the place where you are, this big area. Go from your kindred, your people. Go from your father's house, your family. He starts big and he works his way closer and closer to Abram's heart. And he says, leave it all, Abram. Leave it all. Come out of there. But the call is not just go from, it's also go to. Go to the land that I will show you. And we're so familiar with this scene, this call of Abram, that I think we forget how radical this call is. God is calling Abram to leave all that he knows. Abram's not a recent college grad just getting started in life. He's not leaving a month-to-month apartment or he hasn't been crashing on his buddy's couch and he's like, yeah, I'm up for wherever. Like, I don't know, maybe I'll pop over to the West Coast for a while. Like, no, he's settled. He's 75 years old. He's married. He has a vocation. He has family around. He has a life. And now God calls him to leave all that he looks to for comfort, for provision, for protection, and for support. He says, leave all that. But at least he knows where he's going, right? I mean, surely God, God showed him the pics online, kind of gave him a, a flyover, and then Abram read some reviews about how great the place he's moving to was. He researched. He knows how far away it is, how long the journey will take, and what kind of jobs are waiting on him, what kind of housing and crime and schools are there. Abram knows all that, right? He knows what he's walking into. No. He leaves everything to follow God into an unknown future. Why would he do that? Because he trusted the promises of God and he trusted the God who made the promises. He left by faith. Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And isn't this always the way of faith? When Jesus calls us to follow him, it's a radical call. 
Sometimes I, I fear that we almost minimize it, that it's kind of a minor decision, like, yeah, I, I wasn't a Christian, now I am a Christian. It's radical. It's a new life. It's a call to leave everything and follow him. He may not call you to leave your location, but he does call us to leave our old life. Faith is turning away from sin and the other sources of satisfaction and saying to Jesus, I trust you to be all that I need. You are my joy, my savior, my protector, my provider, my comfort. We venture out wholly on him. We may not know the way we go, but oh, we know our guide. That is the way of faith. But if we're honest, though, some of us don't want to leave. We hear the promises of blessing in Jesus. We, we hear that, and we want that. We desire the good things. The things that God says to Abram next, I will do this, I will do this, I will do We say, yes, I'll take that and then some. But we don't really want to leave the old life. We'd like to just add Jesus into what we got going on already. If, he will, if he'll kick in those promises and I can keep doing things the way I'm doing it, that seems like the best of both worlds. But that is not what God calls his people to. He calls us to lose our life so we can find it. To become exiles so we can inherit a promised land. To leave the city of destruction and strike out as pilgrims on our way to the celestial city. It's not just a call to go from where we are, but it's a call to go to the land God will show us. Friends, he's taking us somewhere. He has a better home, a better city. That's what we read of why Abram left to follow God's call in Hebrews 11. It wasn't just he said, oh, I'm tired of this. He says, I'm, wherever you're taking me is going to be better. That's why Hebrews says, by faith he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Friends, the life of faith is headed somewhere. It's not just simply, now we're going to do this life a little differently. We think we're going somewhere different. We have a different destination in mind. We're not just walking the same journey in a slightly different manner. We have a completely different destination. It's headed somewhere, and that somewhere it's headed is home. That's why we sang that promised land is calling. We're almost home. Not a tear shall fall in. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. That matters to us because we know that we're on our way somewhere. And what fueled the faith of Abraham? What gave him what he needed to leave it all and follow God into this unknown future? The promises of God. Specifically five promises. First, God promised to make Abram a great nation. Now to be a great nation, you have to have a large population. And God promises he's not just going to give this older, infertile couple a child, which would have been amazing. He promised he's going to make their family so big that one day they're going to have a government and borders and be a great nation. 
One person I read said, he's promising Abram, hey, one day your family's going to be so big, they're going to be on the security council at the UN. That's, what? God's going to build something great, and he says, and I'm going to do it from shockingly small and unlikely beginnings. Second, God is going to bless Abram. He will pour out his goodness and favor on him. He won't just call Abram to be and do something. He will give him all that he needs to be and do it. All that Abram could want or need will be found in this blessing of God. No good thing will God withhold from this man who walks uprightly. And with the Lord as his shepherd, Abram will not want. Third, God will make Abram's name great. The name that the people at Babel worked so hard to try to make for themselves. God is instead going to give as a gracious gift to Abram. That it's not about you trying to work so hard to get something on your own. It's like, I'm just going to give it to you, Abram. Abram is going to gain international fame and reputation. That's when he says, I'll make your name great. There's probably a sense of royalty involved. The only other time we see this language of a great name that's not talking about God is with David in 2 Samuel 7. He promises, I will make your name great. So there's this idea of this ruler of international renown. But this international renown won't be simply for Abram's own sake. It will be so that Abram will be a blessing to others. God will do good to Abram so that he will do good to others. Fourth, God promises that Abram will emerge victorious in a great conflict that will determine the destiny of all peoples. This one doesn't jump right out of you, so let me explain what I'm saying here. Because I think this is really important. When it says, those who bless Abram, God will bless And those who dishonor Abram, God will curse. There's two peoples. Those who are blessed and those who are cursed. This is the continuation of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The line of blessing and the line of curse. And what happens to people will all come down, it says, to how they respond to Abram and his God. Will they respond to Abram's God with the same faith Abram shows? If so, they'll be blessed. If not, they'll be cursed. All of it hinges on what they do with this man and his God. Fifth, God promises that in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram will become the instrument of worldwide blessing. Now remember, in our first 11 chapters, the earth had fallen under a worldwide curse. But now God announces that his solution to the curse and to a restoration of blessing would come through Abram. There would be a way back to God's good design of God's happy people in God's glorious place under God's kind rule. It's what we saw in the beginning. You remember all the way back to chapter 1. And it would come through Abram and his offspring. There's so many connections to what God promises he's going to do through Abram to what he told Adam in the beginning. All the blessings of creation. Be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to make you a great nation. 
rule over the earth, have dominion. He says, okay, I'm going to make your name great. I will give you rulership over the earth. I'm going to give you a land. Put them in Eden. There's all, he's saying, through Abram, I'm getting you back into the promised land. This is the good news that Abram believed. He trusted God's promise to make a way back into his blessing, back to his presence, back into his family. And now, much later, we know that this good news that Abram believed has a name. His name is Jesus. And in him, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. Jesus, the offspring of Abram, left his home and his father's house to come to the land God had shown him. He came to this world full of sinners and saved us from our sin by taking it on himself. He bore the wrath reserved for you and for me. Jesus undid the curse by becoming a curse for us so that we could be blessed. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Why did he do this? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Did you hear that? The blessing of Abraham. What blessing? This blessing. Genesis 12, blessing. And he says it might come to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The nations. That blessing, he says, is going to all the nations. And how is it coming? It's coming through faith in Jesus. God makes Jesus into a great nation. God gives us every blessing in Jesus. Jesus has given the greatest name, the name above all names. Jesus is the one on whom people's destinies hinge. Those who bless him are blessed. And those who dishonor him are cursed. Jesus is the one in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the unmatched gospel promises that you and I experience today, friends, in Jesus were first promised to an unlikely and unable man as part of God's unfolding plan. Now, if we wonder, are we going so far, a little too far? I'm, I'm tracking with you, but this, to use the language of gospel, I don't know if, that's, if I'm willing to go there. Well, Paul's willing to go there. Galatians 3.8 says this, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's saying they heard the gospel before it was called the gospel. Like before it was cool, they knew the gospel into the sinful chaos and rebellion of the world that we saw in Genesis 1-11. to That's what it's meant to do. The foundation is laying is saying, see what mankind does when it tries to do it on its own? Look at the tragedy and the chaos that ensues when mankind tries to depart from God. So it lays the foundation and says, we need something else. We need a solution outside of ourselves. 
And into that sinful chaos and rebellion, what does God do? He preaches the gospel beforehand. He promises Abram blessing and promises that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And all of it hinged on one thing. Faith. Faith. These promises, as glorious as they are, required a response from Abram. If Abram sits in his tent and doesn't leave, they don't happen. Abram had to trust God and follow him by faith. And it's an active faith. He couldn't sit in his tent either and say, I believe you, God, but, I, I don't, but I, I'm not sure enough to actually take action. He had to get up and follow God into an unknown future. And this glorious gospel of Jesus, where God promises us forgiveness of sin, where he promises to break the chains of sin and death, where he promises us a new homeland filled with the never-ending blessing of God, it too requires a response. So the question for us this morning is, will we share the faith of Abram? Will we hear God's call? It's, it's going out right now. You are being called to leave it all and follow Jesus with your life. Will you hear and respond in faith? Will we follow Jesus and trust God to fulfill every promise in him? Will we walk by faith and not by sight? I pray that we will because if we do, God's word promises us that we will be blessed along with Abraham. That is the gospel in Genesis 12. The gospel that God preached beforehand. Would you pray with me? God, we love the gospel. And we marvel that you've preached it to our forefather, Abram, when he was as unlikely a person to respond as any. He wasn't looking for you. He wasn't living for you. He was just far away from you in the east, doing his own thing in a land filled with pagans, worshiping everything but the true God. And into his life you came and said, I want to call you to follow me. What grace what mercy. And then the fact that you would choose him and his barren wife to be the source of a family so numerous that they're more than the sands on the shore. God, remind us that you are not some small God whose plans are fragile and subject to fail. Lord, you pick unlikely people who are unable to do the things needed to be done so that you can show that while we are unable, you are more than able. God, thank you that you still today are calling unlikely people. We have a room full of them this morning. And so as your unlikely people who were unable to do the one thing you call us to do apart from your grace, we praise you this morning. And we hear these promises you made to Abram and we long to see them fulfilled. God, we long 
to see the fullness of them. To see the people you have ransomed from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. We long to be home in the place that you have provided for us. The place that Jesus said, I go to prepare for you. And when I come, I will take you to be with me. And God, we long to be people who trust these promises, who are willing to leave everything else, to leave both the major sins and just the minor things that take our eyes off of you. God, help us to lay aside every sin and every weight and to look to Jesus so that we can run the race with our eyes fixed on him. Thank you for Abram. Thank you for the good news that he heard. And thank you for the good news we have in Jesus. Help us to believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.